Hi, this is Anubhav Gupta, Associate Director at the Asia Society Policy Institute, and welcome to the latest episode of Asia Inside Out, where we take you beyond the latest headlines and provide an insider's view on Asia and global affairs. We have seemed to officially enter election season in the United States. The next Democratic presidential debate is right around the corner. Americans, I think, are starting to perk up and pay attention to presidential politics. For this episode, we wanted to take a look at the role of foreign policy in the presidential campaign, trying to understand what issues, what narratives related to foreign policy and and the world might trickle their way into the campaign trail, um, which has so far, I would say, largely been focused on domestic issues like immigration, healthcare, and the economy. And I've got a fantastic guest with me here today, Ali Wine, who is a D.C.-based policy analyst at the RAND Corporation. Like a lot of really smart people in D.C., Ali is interested in and follows a number of issues. His predominant focus is on U.S.-China relations, but in prior conversations with him, I've learned that he thinks a great deal about great power competition and especially about the politics of foreign policy. So, Ali, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, So let's talk about foreign policy and American politics. Uh, We know that a lot of things related to international affairs are going to come up in the election. There is, of course, you know, the Ukraine investigation and the Russia investigations, and now we have the impeachment drama. But I'd like to mostly sidestep that for our conversation today and talk about some of the concrete issues, some of the countries that will demand attention during the campaign trail. So, you know, let me just start by saying or asking, you know, what do you think will be the major foreign policy issues in 2020? So I, well, I'm somewhat biased, and, and you you alluded to my my principal area, or you you mentioned my principal area of of interest, which is the relationship between the United States and China. So, uh, despite that, despite that bias, I, I do think that the relationship with China is going to be the most consequential foreign policy issue, and I think that it should be. Uh, the United States and China, obviously, they have the world's two largest economies. They have the two uh, largest military expenditures. And there are few, I would say few, if any issues, really pressing issues of world order where we can make meaningful uh, progress if there isn't some baseline of sustained cooperation between uh, the two countries. And I think that the uh, so a, n- a number of considerations. One, uh, strategic frictions between the two countries are growing. And you know, a decade ago, I think that people focus primarily on the narrowing of the economic gap between the United States and China. And that, of course, the the economic gap is continuing to narrow. But there are other elements of friction that are now becoming more salient. So military competition between the two, particularly in the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific, depending on your your preferred parlance. And I think increasingly also, and, and probably to the surprise of a number of observers, uh, the ideological competition or dimension of competition is growing more salient. And I think that we're seeing, we're seeing that ideological uh, tension become more, uh, becoming more pronounced with the, controver- the NBA controversy and the, the sort of Chinese blacklisting of uh, showing uh, the Houston Rockets basketball games. And so it's a multidimensional competition. Uh, the United States and China, they're not, they're not purely antagonistic, but their relationship is certainly growing more contentious, more adversarial, some might say. And so the big question for whichever president, whether it uh, comes next, whether President Trump is reelected or whether one of uh, the Democratic uh, contenders is elected, it's, it's going to be a big question, uh, or several questions, I would say. Number one, how do we characterize China? It, it's obviously somewhere along the spectrum between uh, ally and adversary. It's certainly closer to adversary than ally, but I, I suspect the most observers would say that it's not a pure unalloyed antagonist in the way that the Soviet Union was. So how do we characterize China? Because diagnosis is a precondition for strategy. You can't formulate a coherent strategy towards 
a geopolitical competitor if you can't accurately diagnose it. So question one, how do you diagnose China? Number two, uh, how do you balance the opportunities and the risks of interdependence, uh, economic and technological interdependence? And so I would say that up until very recently, the consensus or the a near consensus among I think, uh, observers in Washington and Beijing was that economic and technological interdependence, however problematic, it at least imparted some baseline of stability to the U.S.-China relationship. I think what we're seeing in recent years is that that presumption is now starting to uh, to come under question. And there are more and more observers who talk about the security risks of economic interdependence. Um, the president certainly has has tapped into the anxiety or tapped into the concern that interdependence has uh, has victimized the American middle class, has given Americans a raw deal. So the next president will also have to think about how to recalibrate interdependence with China. And I think lastly, where is it that we would like to go? And I know that that the question is obviously a very uh, a very broad one, but one of the concerns I have about the um, about the sort of the conversation about China policy in Washington, and I would say it's a concern more broadly that I have with the notion of great power competition, which we we might talk about later, is that it seems to me that there is more of an emphasis on competition for competition's sake rather than a discussion of competition as a means towards achieving something. And I, I think that there's the, there's an old quip allegedly attributed to Yogi Berra where he says, uh, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. And and there's certainly some purchase to that observation. I, I think that in order for us to have a, a uh, at least a minimally coherent strategy towards China. We need to we need to think more granularly about where it is that we would like to go. Do we uh, do we hope to maintain preeminence over China, and if so, what's a sufficiently acceptable margin of preeminence? Would we countenance, or could we even countenance psychologically parity with China, and if so, so what concessions would we make vis-a-vis -vis China? What are our red lines? So, and anyhow, I, I know I'm rambling, but I, I think that China is certainly going to be the, the predominant foreign policy, issue, foreign policy issue, far from the only one, but it would certainly be at the top of my list. That's really interesting, because I, and I think you're reflecting certainly what seems to be the a sort of bipartisan establishment consensus here in Washington. I want to ask you, though, so, you know, you kind of hinted at this this idea of where are we going? And, you know, I think President Trump, um, for better or worse, his position on China, I think, is probably somewhat clear to most Americans. Like he uses, you know, you mentioned a strategic narrative, strategic competition. You mentioned ideological competition. You mentioned economic competition. It seems to me that his framing generally speaking, is on the economic lens, on economic competition and how American companies and American workers have perhaps um, lost out to China. Does the democratic field have a consensus frame? Is there a vision for China on the democratic side? Not as far as I can discern. And, and, and of course, I, I, I would certainly defer to those who are, are intimately involved with the various campaigns. But even in my even in the conversations I've had with with friends and with colleagues who are, are involved with various democratic campaigns, the sense that I get is that there is on on the democratic side whether you know, whether you talk to uh, you know folks who are working with Senator Warren or with Vice President Biden or or other uh, you know Mayor uh, Buttigieg, the sense that I get is that on the democratic side that there is a lot of there's a lot of criticism of the way that the president or the administration is handling its policy towards China. There isn't as much clarity on what an alternative, sort of a coherent alternative, would look like. And do I? Th I think it's problematic. But I also, I, I think that we have to acknowledge just the complexity of, of formulating a coherent alternative for for a number of reasons. Um, you know, one, as as I was saying earlier, it's it's not clear exactly how we diagnose China. They're closer to 
you know, adversary or antagonist, but they're not, they're not fully so. We still, despite the at least incipient rhetorical momentum in both uh, countries towards decoupling, there still is an extant, a very, very large extant level of economic and technological interdependence between the two countries. Um, China, there's still also a very robust, uh, uh, very robust cultural exchanges. So China accounts for, I think, roughly one third of all, fully one third of all international students who are enrolled at American institutions of higher learning. Uh, Chinese students and entrepreneurs play a critical role in the American economy, in our entrepreneurial landscape. So, so one, um, given those, those various interdependencies, uh, given the inability to classify China neatly, and also given the reality that some of the, some of the measures that the president has put in place and some of the anxieties that he has tapped into vis-a-vis China are going to be difficult to reverse. And it's I, I think that because the president's foreign policy has been quite orthodox in certain regards, and because he has departed quite significantly from many of these sort of the chair shibboleths of his um, of the foreign policy establishment, and and departed from his post-war predecessors, um, I think that there's a certain conceit or maybe a hope that if you know you know whether you know whether uh, President Trump is a one-term president or a two-term president, that once the president once President Trump is no longer on the scene and there's another president, that we can essentially go back to pre-2016 policy on China and pre-2016 uh, foreign policy more generally. And I just don't think that that will be the case. And so there are certain there are certain outstanding questions that I, I at least have not seen uh, fully answered. Um, if Let's say a Democrat is elected uh, next year. Uh, what would the Democrats? What would that uh, Democratic president's position be on tariffs, for example? Would we, you know, would he or she uh, reverse all the tariffs, reverse some of the tariffs, reduce the levels of the tariffs? So, what do we do about tariffs? Um, would we, would we remove uh, the impositions that we've currently placed on companies such as Huawei and ZTE in full, not at all, partially? So there are a lot of questions about um, there are a lot of questions about how exactly, uh, if at all, we would reverse what the next president would reverse what the president has done on, on China. But I do think it's fair to say that our our relationship with China has entered into a fundamentally different uh, period. Um, I think that it's important, and, and something that I try to convey to to Chinese friends and, and Chinese interlocutors whenever I have the opportunity to speak, is that while President Trump has perhaps been more vocal than his predecessors in surfacing, surfacing anxieties about China, the the anxiety that we're seeing uh, about China, one, it predates the president, and it had certainly been percolating in the later years of the Obama administration. It is largely bipartisan. I mean, just take a look at. I was quite, you know, quite uh, surprised. If you look at the letter, uh, the the joint uh, bipartisan letter that was sent uh, to the co- uh, commissioner of the NBA, Adam Silver, um, it's very rare, to, uh, especially in these highly partisan times, when you have, you know, when you have, you know, Senator Sass, you know, Senator uh, Senator Cruz, and you know, Congresswoman Ocasio Cortez. They don't really agree on much, but when they are when they are lending their imprimaturs to a letter, you know that there it reflects a degree of consensus about China that really doesn't exist on a lot of other issues. And so I would say that the 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 concerns are bipartisan. Uh, the concerns predate this president. I think the concerns will endure beyond this president. And I would also I would add a point that the concern it, it used to be the case I would say in years past that. Concerns about China were not exclusively, but they were they were principally, I would say, confined to the military establishment or sort of the purely national security establishment. What we're seeing now is that distrust of China, while certainly most it remains most intense in, in the military domain, it's starting to percolate down. 
So now the business community, for example, which up until now has, has been the largest or has been the most forceful advocate for engagement with China, uh, and it still is on balance, but it's starting to sour. The American public has never been more sour about China. It's still... Uh, it still favors engagement on balance, but I think if you look at the latest polling, I think something like 60% of Americans have an unfavorable view of China. So what we're seeing now is that it's it's a bipartisan souring of sentiment. It's a multi-audience or multi-vocal or multi-constituency souring on China, and it's going to be very difficult for a Democratic president to to reverse that trend. Let me bring it back to the campaign, though. So you meant you said you know that. You think that China will be the the number one foreign policy issue on the in the campaign trail, but I wonder if that could truly be the case if there, as you mentioned, isn't a lot of contrast between the two messages that the sides have. If the Democrats' message is simply "we'll do it better in a more deliberate way," process, 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 that doesn't seem to me like a very compelling political message. And so I wonder if there really truly isn't much distance in the broader approach towards seeing China as an adversary that we need to do something about, um, how much that can truly command attention on the debate stage. That's fair. And I think that's a, re- no, I think that's a really, really uh, important point. And it's, I mean, it's interesting that in, in previous elections, when China would come up, uh, you know, Republicans would try, you know, if if Republicans were sort of in the minority, they would say that you know, the, the Democratic president isn't sufficiently tough on China, and you know, the reverse also the reverse also would obtain. I think now, though, what you have, to the extent that there's a debate on China, and, and I think you were alluding to this in your, your question or in the lead-up, uh, I think the debate is who will be tougher. So it's, it's in other words, it's not so much, uh, you know, we have an incumbent president who at least is not notionally tough, and, 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 and his competitors are going to be, you know, tough. It's degrees of toughness. It's types of toughness. It's execution of toughness. It goes back to the competition for competition's sake that you mentioned. Yeah, exactly. And, and this is this is something I worry about. I want to push back a little bit uh, again on what you mentioned earlier. So, and again, you said China is going to be the number one issue. And you just talked about how, you know, there's a growing consensus, certainly in Washington, there is a consensus, um, but also in the public that there's negative views of China. I was actually surprised um, by some recent polling. So the Chicago Council on World Affairs released their annual survey this year. Um, and, you know, I was surprised that China actually, you know, despite a lot of the messaging from from Democrats and Republicans in Washington, don't seem to think of China as, as grave a threat as some other things. You know, across a lot of surveys, terrorism, North Korea, Iran, climate change, these kinds of things from survey to survey often trump Sorry, <laughs> you started to use that phrase. Um, there are higher priorities or higher threats, considered to be higher threats than China or even Russia. And the Chicago Council of World Affairs actually asked um, Americans um, if they would prefer that, that the U.S. policy be one that pursued friendly cooperation and engagement with China or a policy which sought to limit the growth of China's power. 68% of Americans said they would prefer a friendly cooperation and engagement with China. 31% said we want to limit the growth of China's power. To me, that suggests that there is a big disconnect between where, again, the policy establishment in D.C. and the two parties stand and where the public is. What does that tell you? Is that a problem that there is this disconnect? Oh, absolutely. And there was an op-ed, I'm, I'm forgetting exactly when it was published and what the title is, but it, it was a piece uh, a piece by Dan Dresner, and he, and he talks exactly about this phenomenon, that 
there is a very marked disconnect. Now he pub- he published the op-ed several months ago, but I, I think that the the latest poll that you that you point to is I think f- sort of further corroborates the, his observation, which is that it's all. I mean, it would have been difficult enough even if there wasn't this gap uh, between public sentiment and elite sentiment vis-a-vis China. I mean, even if there was a degree of unanimity or or or, or uh, yeah, a unanimity in that sentiment. Given you know, given the factors that we talked about earlier, it would have been difficult enough anyway to come up with a coherent China strategy. But the fact that there is that big of a disconnect is also problematic. And I think that what we're seeing is, even within even within public sentiment, there's a certain I don't want to say incoherence, but there there's certain tensions. And so you have I think 60% of Americans I, I think it might have been a Chicago Council poll, but 60% of Americans who have unfavorable views of China, but then that poll that you just cited saying that the overwhelming majority, not overwhelming, but the, the you know, substantial majority of Americans, despite having harboring those unfavorable views, uh, nonetheless are not, are not inclined towards containment. I think that Americans are, are wary. I think that they're increasingly apprehensive. But I think that on a day-to-day basis, I think that the way that Americans think about China, they don't think about it with the same, uh, and, I, and for understandable reasons, they don't necessarily think about it with the same urgency that, say, you know, the head of uh, Indo-PACOM might think about it. So I think if I'm, so, you know, when I think about, you know, the hometown, uh, you know, my hometown, uh, I think a lot of folks Which in my home, Fredericksburg, Virginia. So, you know, small town. I, Swing 30, state. Yeah. Um, you know, 30,000, I, th- I think about 30,000, maybe a little, a little over 30,000 people. But I think a lot of folks, if, you know, in, in my hometown would say, look, we we don't like sort of China's approach to domestic governance. We don't like their their conceptions of of human rights, on and on. But you know, China furnishes continues to furnish uh, low cost goods that we depend upon for our day to day lives, and that China uh, it's we see lots of Chinese students at our at our universities. Uh, Chinese scientists contribute a lot to our labs, and so I I think that Americans, despite their misgivings about China, their apprehensions, I think that China. Um, I think that China, for many Americans, still plays an important role. And even now, many of the constituencies that have been quite supportive of the president in being uh, notionally tougher on China, they're now starting to experience greater pain as a result of these protracted tensions. And so even for those folks who think that we need to get tougher on China and think that China, they think perhaps of China in more adversarial terms, um, actually pursuing a an antagonistic relationship vis-a-vis China or trying to contain China, it's going to hurt people in their wallets, and it's going to it's going to really undercut people's abilities to to live their day-to-day lives materially. Yeah, and related to that, you know, you study great power competition, um, and it's clear that there's another emerging consensus in Washington um, that we're in the era of great power competition. That this is what. American policymaking needs to wake up to. This is what the next two, three decades are really going to be about. Um, but there again, we have a disconnect. Um, you know, I read this piece by Richard Fontaine in the Foreign Affairs. So Richard Fontaine is the chief executive officer of the Center for a New American Security. And let me just quote him really quickly. Um, he says, For all the acrimony in Washington today, the city's foreign policy establishment is settling on a rare bipartisan consensus that the world has entered a new era of great power competition. The struggle between the United States and other great powers will fundamentally shape geopolitics going forward for good or ill. And more than terrorism, climate change, or nuclear weapons in Iran or North Korea, the threats posed by these other great powers, namely China and Russia, will consume U.S. foreign policymakers in the decades ahead. However, he says, there is a striking disconnect between the consensus in Washington and the views of most Americans 
Survey after survey shows that the vast majority of Americans are relatively unconcerned with great power competition and much, much, much more focused on other threats. So let me um, use that as a way to pivot to a, diff- a slightly different conversation, which is about politics and narrative. So, you know, great power competition, it means something to you and I. It means something to people who study international affairs. Do you think it means anything to nor, you know, a normal American citizen on the ground. Again, there's this disconnect, but two, how do you bridge that disconnect in the political culture? In the absence of some coalescence of sentiment between the American public and the elite on foreign policy priorities, you can temporarily sustain a foreign policy. I don't think you can do so indefinitely if there is a fundamental and enduring divergence between the public's priorities and those of the elite. And so it is problematic. Uh, and then, but and to your second point, if I had a if I had a good answer, I'd be able to retire tomorrow. We've, we've. I think that we've been struggling since. Well, I, I don't want. I, I don't want to say that, that this debate didn't exist prior to uh, to Donald Trump's election victory. But I, I certainly do think that his victory has has made this this concern about narrative more pressing. It's made it more salient. And it's true. And, and lest, I, lest I be holier than thou and sanctimonious, I, uh, when I look back on, uh, and, and I still use these terms, these, these sort of much derided sort of abstractions, um, just because it, it sort of in the, in the researcher community or in the analytical community, these, these terms, at least in theory, are supposed to uh, be sort of sort of in shorthand. They're supposed to be yeah, kind of shorthand. I think that they're useful. And again, and I realize I say so sanctimoniously because I, the very, the very terms whose invocation sometimes makes me cringe because I feel that they are too abstract and too detached from actual um, sort of more granular policy considerations. Um, they, they don't, they, they are very detached from people's, uh, from people's, I would say, material realities, but perhaps even more importantly from their, I don't know what the term would be, their, their, their emotional realities or their spiritual realities, but the point is, and, and I'm coming to appreciate more and more that um, while, of course, I, I, I've, I've only spent my life working in think tanks, so I'm, I'm a big believer in, in, in facts and in evidence and, and argumentation, but I think that in order to, in order to bridge this perennial uh, gap between the elite and, and, and the public on foreign policy issues, it's not just a matter of messaging. It's not just a matter of narrative. I think I would say make a few points. One, there has to be an acknowledgement. I, th- I think that the elite has to acknowledge that that its judgment has has uh, has often been criticized for for very legitimate reasons. So part of part of restoring trust with the public on matters of foreign policy stewardship is acknowledging that many of the decisions by the so-called best and brightest have have really not produced the most optimal results. Look at our ongoing. Look at our ongoing immersion in Afghanistan. Uh, the war there had, you know, just turned 18 recently. Uh, look at our ongoing immersion in Iraq. Uh, look at the metastasis of the establishment and now metastasis and, and now potential revival of the Islamic State. Uh, look at the, the degeneration of, of Libya, of, of Yemen, and we, you know, we can go on and on and on. And, or look at, the, uh, you know, look at the global financial crisis, which I suspect a lot of people would say was a result of profligacy that was founded or that was, that was encouraged by the elites. So, so I think step one is, and leaving aside narrative, is an acknowledgement that our stewardship, our meaning the you know, elite stewardship, has not always been optimal, far from it. 
Number two, um, we have to we have to understand what people's day to day lives are, what their realities are, and we have to meet people emotionally. Um, if you want to connect with somebody, it doesn't matter how powerful your facts are, how powerful your propositions are. If you don't, if if you begin with if if I'm talking to someone who is skeptical, let's say about the self, the allegedly self-evident virtues of engagement abroad, or the self-evidently obvi- or self-evident virtues of the postal order, on and on and on. If I'm talking with somebody who's skeptical of those propositions or those abstractions, and I say, you know, uh, let me let me uh, let me sell you, let me persuade you, um, you're not going to get very far. And so, what I think we need to do in 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 the foreign policy community is, we need to ask people what's on their minds. We need to meet people where they are. And to the extent that we try to communicate with evidence, facts, argumentation, whatnot, I think that evidence, facts, and argumentation. They need to. They need to be adjuncts of stories. They need to be adjuncts of emotional linkages, rather than the other way around. So, if somebody says, "I'm, I'm going to, I'm deliberately going to be somewhat facetious here, but I'm, I'm trying to make a point." If I go to somebody, and again, I'll use my hometown. If I go to a friend or a neighbor who is living paycheck to paycheck, is struggling with opioid addiction, is uh, feels victimized by globalization, is concerned about the uh, the threat of advents and automation to his or her line of work, feels disillusioned from government and alienated from society. And if I go to that individual and start trafficking in abstractions, um, I think the person would say, you're not really speaking, you may be speaking English, but we're not speaking the same language. You have to ask people. And if somebody says, Ali, I'm upset, I feel, I feel disaffected or I feel alienated. And if I respond by saying, let me tell you why your alienation is analytically unsound, well, I'm probably not going to get very far. So... Now, and it, so everything that I've just said, it, it's, it's a very, very convoluted way of evading your question and really <laughs> saying that I, I don't have a good answer of, of how we bridge this gap. But uh, I'll revert to my answer to sort of the first part of your question, which is that it is absolutely problematic that there is a gap between public, uh, sort of public perceptions of foreign policy priorities and, and those of the elite. Because, again, if the elite is convinced that great power competition, however we define the term or conceive of the term, is really uh, sort of the pressing strategic imperative for decades to come, and if we can't arouse the public or make the public alive to that challenge and can't convince them why they should be more concerned about this grand strategic challenge or 30,000-foot challenge and their day-to-day material challenges, well, it's going to be very difficult for us because then think about, think about, the, think about how, how the logic would work. If the public isn't sold on great power competition, it doesn't matter how much the elites and officials in the Pentagon press Congress for more for more funding for great power competition investments. Uh, members of Congress will say, "Look, my I'm up for re-election, and my constituents are not concerned about this issue. They are concerned about other issues, and so I'm going to press for funding for priorities of my constituents." And that means that so again, we need to do a better job of narrative. But I think it's 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 more than just messaging, and it's more than just narrative. It's it's meeting people where they are emotionally, finding out where they are, what their concerns are, um, and it's doing. I, I think I think acknowledging where our stewardship of foreign policy has not been optimal. And it's also trying to make a more deliberate effort to bring, uh, to bring middle-class Americans um, into the conversation about foreign policy so that they are not just passive spectators to a foreign policy that's being crafted by elites, but that they are engaged, uh, they are engaged participants in shaping, in shaping foreign policy. And those are, those are, are going to be generational imperatives. Yeah, you know, your um, kind of description of talking down to or explaining away 
civilian sentiments by elites, I almost feel like there should be a term for it the way we have mansplaining, some sort of elitesplaining or something like that. It certainly happens a lot. Um, and part of it is the elites often not understanding what's driving, what's behind sentiments that people outside of the Beltway have. And I think one person who, you know, whether you agree with him or not, I think has been a very good storyteller, someone who was actually has been very successful in tapping into people's emotions and relating foreign policy to politics is our President Donald Trump. You know, and I think you can see that specifically on the immigration debate. Um, but he reverts back to certain imagery, um, often very visceral imagery, um, that he harps on over and over again. But he's telling a story each time he talks about, you know, someone coming over the border to commit X or Y crime. Um, and similarly, you know, he connects things about trade to workers at Harley-Davidson losing their jobs. And so he's been able to connect issues that might seem like far away or abstract to the lives of the American people. And his kind of broad narrative around that is America first. So that's, you know, an abstraction that I think the president has been generally successful about relaying to his supporters who feel this at an emotional level and feel very strongly about it. So my question is, you know, is there a, a narrative like that on the other side? What's going to be the corollary? What's going to be challenging America first? Do the Democrats have something like that? For any such, I, I think for any alternative proposal to to gain traction with a, a significant segment of the American public, it has to contain at least two components. One is it has to demonstrate there has to be a uh, there has to be a clear story of how America First, at least as it's as it has been promulgated and executed by this administration, is actually undermining the very constituents it purportedly or ostensibly uh, uh, seeks to seeks to empower. So first is is the critique, but then the critique has to be followed by here is you know here is a strategy or here is a foreign policy that's that regards the empowerment or the advancement of the middle class not as a hoped for byproduct but as an explicit objective. It, it's it's the, the 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 term in a way is it's is it's an interesting term because if I say, I mean, which which candidate would say I'm not America first? I and mean, so I think a lot of Democrats are, are saying, look, you know, sure, we're America first as well, but we conceptualize of it differently and we want to pursue it in a way that actually benefits you. But even as I'm <laughs> even as I'm answering your question, I realize that unless you can distill that in a pithy way, just it doesn't what what the president has done very effectively with America First, I think he not only has has tapped into very visceral anxieties, uh, but he's done so succinctly. The president doesn't need an essay of 3,000 words to explain America first. The president has said, you know, America first, workers first, I want to, you know, China's eating our lunch, other countries are eating our lunch. And so he has a, a case that even if you disagree with it analytically, it resonates. Um, I would say that one of the challenges, actually, one of the other challenges the Democrats will face, in addition to trying to frame their case in a pithy way, is um, how do they make a succinct argument that avoids targeting specific countries. And what I mean by that is, so take take the issue of trade. The vast majority of evidence that, that at least that I've, I'm, I'm, I'm far from a <laughs> far from a trade specialist, but it, in talking with, with friends and colleagues who are knowledgeable about trade, they say that if you look at America's manufacturing losses over the past 15, 15 odd, 15 or 20 odd years, probably about 80 to 85% of those job losses in American manufacturing are attributable to advances in technology, and particularly automation, not to trade. Now, the president says, 
China is eating our lunch, Mexico is eating our lunch. The problem is, even though, uh, yes, China, you know, China and Mexico and other countries have contributed somewhat to America's manufacturing declines, but again, the lion's share of manufacturing losses um, are attributable to a faceless, a faceless adversary. So for the Democrats, how do you put a face on automation? How do you put, and I think the president has been effective because when he says, so he says, I'm going to empower you, and here's the face, or here's the name of the person or the country that is causing problems, even if it's analytically wrong, but it resonates with people. If you go to somebody and say, you know, it's those robots who are coming, or it's, you know, changes in automation or technology, even if that's analytically true, it just doesn't resonate with people in the same way. So I, I think that the Democrats, they're going to have a big challenge in rendering, in rendering a narrative that critiques the president effectively, resonates with people viscerally, um, is able to articulate a coherent theory of change, um, and to do so in a way that relies on on uh, stories, and that's that's why that's why the campaigns have lots of advisors <laughs> and lots of folks who are, who are trying to help. It, it's it's a tough task. But there are some hints in there about what potentially an alternate vision could be, and you know I was surprised that you know despite this idea of america first um and despite the president's kind of harping on the idea that you know we can't be the world's police we need to withdraw our troops from all these different places what are we doing in all these different places um 69 of people uh and the survey said that this is actually as high i think the the highest number they've ever had is like 70 71 percent 69 percent of americans approve of the united states playing a more active role in world affairs. Now, a more active role can be a lot of different things, but there again, you have a clear majority of Americans saying that they want America essentially to lead to some degree. Now, how they want America to lead is is what you have to kind of define and, and figure out, but there is something there. That surprised me a little bit. Another thing that really surprised me was that despite the president's kind of bashing of trade and U.S. trade deals, um, the survey found there to be, and this is again a, a record for the survey in many years, 87% of Americans believe trade is good for the U.S. economy. So, you know, I don't know on those on their own what that means, but it suggests that there is there is attitudes out there that are supportive of a U.S. that is enmeshed in the world and does not step back from the world. Um, and people see benefit from that, and not just that oh, it's good, we should be out there. It's more that, oh, I benefit. Um, they felt that 83% believed that trade was good for U.S. companies. I don't think the survey asked this question. I would be very curious to know if they think they're, they're good for U.S. workers. Um, but as far as the U.S. economy and U.S. companies, um, they found trade to be uh, beneficial. So again, there's certainly ways to distinguish yourself um, from the messaging that the president has. And it'll be interesting to see as we have um, the next really year of, of a presidential campaign, what counter narratives come out from the other side. Yeah, well, I, I spoke I spoke with Craig uh, Craig Kafur, who who authored the or I think is is the the, the lead author of, of the report that you've uh, that you've uh, been discussing, and and I asked him I, because th th those findings as well when I was looking at them I said they they struck me as being very counterintuitive, and I I said Craig I said there, there's just something doesn't seem right because I said if you look at you know at least you know you go on Twitter or you go on Facebook or you look at certain town hall discussions and there seems to be a lot of uh, you know a lot of seething against trade and against participation in the global economy and and he made the and, and I asked him I said well what do you think is your explanation for not only that not only that support for trade hasn't uh, sort of hasn't plummeted but that evidently it's reached record levels I said what is your 
sort of what's your hypothesis? And and he offered a few hypotheses, and I think that the one that he the one that he he dwelt on most, and I think it's it's quite plausible, is that most people who are supportive of trade are are not necessarily going to take to Twitter and enthusiastically. Uh, tell folks why they support trade, even if they do. I think it tends to be the, the voices that get ampl- voices that get amplified on social media, the voices that tend to go viral, are, they are the loudest. And so you're far more likely to encounter voices that uh, denounce trade or voices that are, you know, that are just, that sort of take an extreme position either way. But he says that if you talk, he says, first of all, you know, social media platforms are not really representative of public opinion writ large. They they are there's a self-selecting population of folks who are interested in engaging and or in some cases perhaps shouting about certain issues. And so there are certain views that even if they're not representative of the public at large, they tend to get amplified. And so his you know, so his view is that one, we, we shouldn't conflate America that's represented on Twitter with America as a whole. So that's that's point one. Uh, and the point two, uh, you know, because when this report came out, and it came out pretty recently, I think that when, so I guess the first tranche of tariffs, the, the U.S., first tranche of U.S. tariffs on China went into effect, I think, last July. And I think at the time, uh, most observers, or maybe I'm speculating here, but my speculation is that most observers in Washington and Beijing thought that these trade tensions would probably... Uh, that they were perhaps a negotiating tactic, that the Trump administration wanted to get China to the table faster, and that the trade tensions would probably dissipate in short order. But here we are over a year later, and the trade tensions, far from having dissipated, are actually, they continue to escalate. And people now are starting to feel the pain. And you now are seeing that even, you know, even many of, you know, the president's, uh, you know, very fervent supporters who have said we need to take a tougher line, tougher line on China, they now are starting to feel the pain of protracted trade tensions. And so they're now starting to recalibrate and say, hey, we're not, you know, we're certainly not enthusiastic about China, but um, we, we're starting to see why kind of a more autarkic, economic, nationalistic model is, is not advantageous to our interests. So I think the combination of just experiencing increasingly the pain of protracted trade tensions um, and also just the, uh, the the fact that, again, social media America is not is not America as a whole. If you put those two factors together, it's maybe not a it does it, it's not a complete explanation, but at least I, I think it goes a little bit of a way towards advancing an explanation for those numbers you referenced. Well, the idea that social media America isn't a representative of America as a whole is is useful probably in every policy issue that a candidate in 2020 uh, should keep in mind. Oh, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. You know, as you mentioned, this is just the beginning of what's going to be a long and I'm sure very grueling election cycle. You have a wide open field on, on the Democratic side. We have, you know, already a drama of impeachment um, on the Republican side. Who knows what other dramas will, will pop up between now and next November. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. 